0: Welcome to the US Sports Podcast with me, Max Whittle. Today, I'm joined by radio play-by-play broadcaster for the Indiana Pacers, Mark Boyle, who has broadcasted over 2,000 games in the NBA, and Mike Ganter, who covers the Toronto Raptors for the Toronto Sun and is right at the heart of the Cavaliers Raptors series. Let's get straight into it with my first guest today, Mark Boyle who's been with the Pacers since 1988 and, judging on his social media feeds alone, is one of the most fascinating characters around. He's Mark Boyle, radio play-by-play broadcaster for the Indiana Pacers. Mark, how are you doing? I'm well, Max. How are you? I'm good. Is, is it a strange time of year the NBA season for you is over? Is it, is it strange that you're going to look ahead and have so much time ahead of you?
1: Well, not really. Unless you do really well, you're done in April or May, and we've been fortunate in Indiana in that we've had some good teams and have played on into May and June in the past. So it's just a question of how long your offseason is. For us, we got beaten in four games in the first round, so uh, we were done by the first of May, and that's a little bit earlier than normal, but uh, not appreciably so, uh, and I'm still watching the playoffs and following them quite closely, so I'm still engaged in the NBA even though we're not actually working.
0: I think anyone who hears the introduction, they'll think I'm going to break down Cavs' paces with you as it happened. But anyone who follows you on social media, I think I've gotten to know this, knows you more than most sports broadcasters, at least gets to know you more. You're out there, there's no doubt about that. Can we can we start with Instagram, which you're turning into a bit of a veteran's game, as it were, uh, and your first post was actually from London in January. How are you, how you finding Instagram?
1: Well, I'm still learning about it. I was a little skeptical about it because i didn't really see what i could do on instagram that i can't do on twitter and to be honest max i still don't see it but one of our salespeople convinced me that if you get on instagram you'll reach a different audience it's apparently a younger hipper audience and i'm not trying to be young and hip but i feel like as you get older it's a real mistake not to understand how the world is changing and how you should change with it so I'm still learning how to use Instagram. It's not all that different from Twitter, uh, and I don't have nearly the following on Instagram that I do on Twitter. Uh, But I'm going to stick with it for a while and see how it plays
0: out. Start with your profile picture, you and Muhammad Ali. There must be a story there. There
1: is a story there. Uh, It was in Boston maybe five or six years ago, and I have a routine on game day where I do most of my prep work in the morning and then eat lunch, and then get a workout in in the afternoon uh, before uh, we go to the arena. So I was getting set to go for my workout, and I left my hotel room in Boston, and I was Mm -hmm. out in the hall, and I had on my workout gear, uh, and I had on a headset and some music. And as I looked down the hall, I saw this woman pushing a wheelchair. And as it got closer to me, I saw that it was Muhammad Ali. And as they got closer, the woman, who turned out to be his wife, saw my workout gear and said, oh, you're with the Pacers. Uh, We're big Pacers fans. And the champ is from Louisville, which is about an hour and a half from Indianapolis. And he had been in our building on a few occasions earlier in the years and had been in our locker room. And so he was familiar with the Pacers, and so was she. And I'll tell you this, Max, I've been really lucky in my career. I've met a lot of people of prominence. And I could look you straight in the eye and tell you that I have met a lot of people that I think some people would find intimidating. My brain doesn't work that way, and I never have. Uh, But I was really intimidated by Muhammad Ali because he was one of my heroes when I was a young boy. And so I had my picture taken with him, and the whole time he didn't speak. Uh, He was at the stage of his uh, his life where he uh, was well into his Parkinson's and really couldn't do much in the way of communicating, Uh, and the whole thing took like two minutes. The whole experience was maybe two or three minutes, Uh, but it was very profound for me because you're not often lucky enough to meet somebody uh, that was a hero of yours when you were young, and I'm jaded enough that I stopped having heroes when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13, and stopped being impressed by people when I was 17 or 18, but this guy was one of my heroes when I was young, and I was impressed, and it, it was really inspiring for me.
0: What do you think he would say if he was alive today and well about the way the world's going? Because it seems that athletes, black athletes especially, have, have spoken out a lot more since his death.
1: Well, I think he'd be horrified, to be quite honest with you, at least in our country, with the way things are going.
0: Uh, the political
1: climate uh, climate is, at the moment, not necessarily favourable for those in minority positions, and I would suspect people like Muhammad Ali and going way back in our history, uh, John Carlos uh, and Bill Russell and guys who spoke out really back in the day when it wasn't popular, would be mortified that everything uh, by everything that's going on here. A lot of people have spoken out here in sports in the last few months since we've had a change at the presidential level, uh, and I think those that are champions of minority rights and those that have been inspired and encouraged by the development and the progress that women and other ethnic minorities have made over the years would be really troubled by what's happening in our country now. And I, I think Muhammad Ali, if his past is any indication, because he was one of the first to speak out, if he were around today and able to speak, I think you'd hear quite a bit from him.
0: Now, sticking with your Instagram feed, I've, I've noticed alongside you during your broadcasts uh, a miniature Stewie from Family Guy and a, a cuddly little fella that I can't work out who that is. Is this is a ritual? I'm sure started a long time ago. Why do you Why do you carry those along with you?
1: Well, I carry my little miniature Stewie because I love Family Guy. It's my all time favorite show, and I think Stewie is like well, he's not a human; he's a cartoon, but still. For me, I think he's one of the coolest characters ever. So I got this little Stewie, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And then about two years ago, a friend of mine gave me a, a little, I, I guess he's a bear or a dog. He's a little stuffed figure. And his name is Boo, and I'd never heard of him. But apparently he's he's quite popular in certain circles. If you go on the Internet and uh, search for Boo, you'll see pictures and little stories. And I'm still not really familiar with who it is, but... A friend of mine gave it to me, and I thought Stewie was lonesome, so I brought him along, so Stewie would have a friend.
0: Do you, and seriously, though, do you ever, in amidst this world of craziness, which is the NBA and, and the challenges that come with your job, and the pressure that comes with it, do you sometimes just have a quick look at them and, and think? I mean, I watch that in my downtime; it's funny, and it? it just gives you that. It just gives you a relaxing feeling.
1: Well, you're on the right track there, but one of the reasons that I have little idiosyncrasies like that, and bring these little characters around, is because my whole philosophy on on my professional life max is this: I try to take my job really, really seriously without taking myself seriously. And so, when I glance down and see Stewie and Boo sitting there, it, it, if if it is one of those days where I'm taking myself too seriously suddenly reality enters the picture, and I realize that I'm a grown man traveling around with cartoon characters and a stuffed dog. And uh, it, it makes me understand that, you know what, uh, life is to have fun, and you can do that and not take yourself seriously while you take your job and your responsibilities very seriously. And I think that's worked really well for me, and, and those characters, believe it or not, sort of keep me grounded a little bit.
0: So is it Stewie or a cigar if you had to make a pick? ha,
1: <laughs> ha. Well, I hate to be disloyal, but Stewie would have to go. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I got hooked on cigars about 20 years ago, our PR guy who's still with us. A guy named David Benner was a cigar smoker at the time, and we spent a lot of time together on the road. And this was during the time uh, in the mid-90s before smoking was banned in a lot of places here in the States. So you could go to pretty much any bar and have a cigar and a cocktail. Uh, and he turned me on to cigars, and I enjoyed them. Uh, the ritual of it i think more than anything else the preparing of the cigar and then yeah, a good cigar depending on how uh, long it is and what the gauge is uh, it can last as long as an hour and a half and it's very relaxing and i understand it's not good for you but you know what uh, none of us are getting out alive anyway so you may as well have a vice or two along the way and that's mine
0: <laughs> and it helps the voice of course mark right <laughs> of
1: course yeah <laughs> deeper and richer or so i or so i tell myself you,
0: clearly you owe your career to cigars Um, You grew up in Minnesota. Do you remember the first commentator you heard? I
1: do, and I was lucky enough to grow up in an era where, A, radio was dominant. And I say lucky. I think young people today would say, why does he think he's lucky? He couldn't see games. But in my day, there were a few games on television, but mostly if you wanted to follow your teams, you had to listen on radio. And for me, that was fortunate because it created a fascination for me of the whole concept of theater of the mind. And I remember as a young boy listening to games from all over the country, which you could do at night when the signals changed and you could hear, I lived in Minneapolis, you could hear games from St. Louis and Chicago uh, and Detroit and cities in the Midwest. Uh, And I was so fascinated by the way that these broadcasters allowed me to see the game without a picture. And I thought it would be so cool if I could do that for someone else. And the guys I listened to, as I said before, I was so fortunate because we had Hall of Fame caliber guys in Minnesota during my youth. Uh, Herb Carnia was doing the Minnesota Twins, which are a baseball team. He's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Al Shaver, who I later worked with, uh, was doing the Minnesota North Stars, who were a hockey team, uh, and he's in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Ray Scott was the Vikings voice, and he's in the Broadcasting Hall of Fame. Uh, and these guys were all top-shelf guys, and that's who I became enamored with listening to. And although I didn't consciously copy any of them, they were all so good at helping me see something that I couldn't literally see, and I became so fascinated by the challenge of doing that, that I consider myself lucky to have grown up in a time when there wasn't much television.
0: But I'm fascinated because it's something that I do myself, learning from you know people like yourself and, and in, in this media world, and... You hear a lot of people say all the time, oh, I studied him, you know, I, I learned a lot from him. But what did you actually study from these commentators? What, what is it that you would take from them as a kid that you think you have in your, in your job today?
1: Well, it's a general thing first. I realized very soon as I started to listen to games that somehow these guys could make me see something that I couldn't literally see. And that's what captivated me. And then... Once I understood that, I wanted to understand better how they did that. How could they make me see something that I couldn't see? And while I never copied any of them stylistically, there were things that we all do uh, that we didn't invent that we learned from somebody else. For example, the basics of the various sports. Uh, in basketball and football and hockey, time and score. In baseball, what inning is it? How many outs are there? Where are the fielders stationed? And then I think the really good radio broadcasters also take it a step further. What color are the uniforms? Do the players have any distinctive characteristics that you could describe for your listeners? What's the weather like? How's the wind? Is it a nice day? Is it a is it a rainy day? How's the crowd? Is it loud? Is it quiet? Is it somber? And as you get older and understand the language better and pick up that this is one of the things or these are some of the things that these guys do to get you to see something that you can't literally see, then you try to incorporate some of those things into your own broadcast, or at least I did. And that's more or less how I learned how to do it.
0: And I guess this leads into my next question. You've called over 2,000 NBA games now. It sounds like a hell of a lot. And there's, of course, an element of repetition you're telling people what's happening in the game, but what are the themes that you always try to change and differ from from day to day with such a big schedule?
1: I try to, to the extent that you can, use different descriptive phrases or words to describe the same thing. And this is one of the things I stress when I speak to younger aspiring broadcasters. It's not even about broadcasting. If you can learn to command the language, to master the language, which nobody can actually do, nobody masters the language, but some have a better command of it than others. And this would help you not only be a better broadcaster, Max, but it would also help you communicate better, period. And there's virtually no profession in the world where you can't benefit by being a better communicator. So I try to stress that to young people when I speak to them about career choices and about broadcasting specifically. And to use a a real-life example, in our world, in an NBA game, let's say that in a typical game, there are 150 shots taken. And if both teams shoot 50%, that means that 75 of them miss. Well, if I say no good 75 times, that's not really very descriptive. So I try to come up with as many different terms as I can for a missed shot. Is it long? Is it short? Uh, Is it wide? Is it an air ball? uh did he shoot a 15-footer or 14 feet 9 inches uh, these kinds of things try to say the same thing as many different ways as possible and it's inevitable that you're going to repeat the same things but one of the things i listen to when i listen to my own tapes at this stage of my career is for repetition am i using the same term too many times i call those crutch phrases they're easy to drop back on uh and ride with And of course, I'm going to use the same term more than once in the same game. It's impossible not to. But that's the one thing I listen for. And the one thing, not the one thing, but one of the things that keeps me stimulated is trying to find different ways to say the same thing. Uh, That's, I think, one of the things that separates the really good broadcasters from those that are not quite as successful.
0: So you have a pocket dictionary with you, is is what you're saying. (laughs) No, not really. I uh,
1: I try to keep it in my mind because I feel like spontaneity is the best way to go. But every once in a while, I will do this, to the extent that I copy anyone. uh, If I'm driving in my car and listening to a game and I hear somebody describe something in a way that I've never heard described before or have never used myself, I might steal that term. Uh, Not that it would become my term, but uh, I might use it once just to use it because it's a new term I haven't used. Uh, and I wouldn't rely on it or stay with it multiple times. For all I know, maybe that is something that guy's known for, and I don't want to be a copier. But none of us invented the language, so if you use a term, uh, you didn't invent it in all likelihood, uh, and if it captivates me, maybe I can use it to uh, snare my listeners. Uh, I'll do things like that, and I listen to a lot of different guys. Uh, We have Sirius XM here, and so you can listen to all of the major League baseball games or the NFL games or the basketball games or the hockey games, and i 'm not obsessed by it i don 't sit in front of my radio for three hours a night listening to all these games to come up with new terms but when i 'm in the car and listening casually as i 'm driving around, if something jumps out at me i 'll make a mental note of it
0: now I was in New York a few weeks ago and very, very fortunate to be with Mike Breen uh, for a podcast episode a couple a couple of weeks before this and we were talking about his catchphrase, bang. I wondered what you thought about catchphrases and if you, if you believe that you need one nowadays to, to make a name for yourself. That's an interesting question.
1: Uh, do you need one? For me as a listener or a viewer, you don't. Uh, and this is me being a cynic, Max. I believe that 95% of the people that hire talent in our business are idiots. So maybe for them you do. Uh, maybe you have to have something that catches their attention that will get you to hire them. Maybe the basics of doing the job well aren't good enough for these people anymore. Catchphrases in general, I think, depend on the person, uh, depend on whether they're contrived or organic. Um, I don't have many myself. In fact, they're the only one I can think of that I have, and I don't use it every night, is if uh, one of the pacers uh, gets an opportunity for a three-point play not a three-point field goal, but a two plus a free throw, Uh, especially if it's in a big spot in the game, then as he scores, I will say, count it and put him on the line. That's about as much a catchphrase as I use. But other guys have catchphrases that they're well-known for and associated with. Uh, The guy that works color with me on our home games is a former coach of the Pacers. His name is Slick Leonard. He's in the Basketball Hall of Fame. And when we work together, whenever there's a three-point basket, I step back so that he can yell out, boom, baby. That's his catchphrase. And he has actually made money off of it uh, with copyrights and the like. So it depends on who you are. Uh, There's nothing wrong with a catchphrase, I don't think. At the same time, I don't think you need one, although I suspect maybe that those in position to hire and make the decisions about who get the job uh, might think you do. Uh, I think if you ask 10 different guys about catchphrases, you might get 10 different
0: answers. Was it around nineteen eighty six when you started with the Pacers? Nineteen eighty
1: eight.
0: Okay, nineteen eighty eight. So you, you you're going in and I always had this conversation with friends about if you if you write for a, a an official football team here, you have to be, you know, towards the club, very pro club. Whereas if you work for a newspaper, uh you can you can give your opinion a little bit more. And I'm I'm wondering the team is paying you to give a service, but did you believe they were paying you to be objective at that point? Did you have to find clarification on that?
1: I did have to find clarification on that because it was a major concern of mine. Uh, when I got here in 88, I had been in broadcasting for nine years already, but I'd only worked for radio stations. And while I had done games, I wasn't beholden to the teams whose games I was doing because I was working for the radio station. So when I was offered this job, I told the general manager, a man named Donnie Walsh, who was still with us as a consultant and built our strong teams in the nineties, uh, I told him I wanted the job, but I said I had a concern because I've always felt, and still do, that taking a paycheck from a team and then reporting on that team, which is essentially what we do, is a conflict of interest. And I told him I was concerned about it because I felt that my number one asset uh, was my credibility, and without it, I was severely compromised. And he said to me, I don't care what you say as long as you're fair and as long as you don't get personal. And he stayed true to that, and he was running the franchise for about the first, oh, I don't know, 15 years of my run here. And Larry Bird took over after that, and he had the same philosophy. And so I've been really fortunate because I only speak for the Indiana Pacers. I have had issues, never with the basketball people, always with the marketing people who think maybe you're not positive enough or maybe you're too critical. But my philosophy as a broadcaster, goes one step further than what I've already shared with you, Max, and it's this. Once the ball goes up, I don't work for the Pacers anymore. I work for the listeners. At least that's how I see it. And to be dishonest and disingenuous and feed the listeners a line of nonsense I think is insulting, and I just won't do it. All of that said, you're still at the mercy of your employer. If the Pacers didn't share that philosophy, then I would have been fired a long time ago. And in the U.S., with Team Sports, It's becoming increasingly the norm that the teams who pay you, and almost all of us now in the U.S. are employed by the teams that we broadcast for. That's the way that the business has evolved over the years. Uh, More often than not, you're expected to be positive, and I know some of my peers who have been pressured to be positive. You're not positive enough. We're trying to sell tickets. I get that, uh, but I tell my marketing people, and we've come to an understanding of mutual respect, I think, That if I don't have my integrity, then I can't help you sell tickets. I want the guy driving down the road who's listening to one of our broadcasts and I say something good about the Pacers, I want him to say, hey, Mark's not always positive unless there's a reason. Maybe I should go down there and check out a game. Instead of, well, yeah, Mark's positive today, but he was saying the same thing when when the team was in last place. And so my word has no value, no credibility, and I can't help them sell tickets. I think integrity and credibility are paramount, and I've been really, really fortunate that I work for a team that sees it the same way.
0: I read that Marv Albert and Bob Ryan helped you out early on. Those are two people you want wisdom from, right?
1: Well, yeah, for sure. Uh, You know, they're both legendary. When I came in the league 29 years ago, they were legendary figures, so imagine their status now. And the reason that I became impressed by them, I was already familiar with and had high regard for their work. But when I was a rookie in the league, they both came up to me unsolicited and told me if there was anything they could do to help me adjust to this new league, then let them know they would be glad to uh, be of assistance. And those are the kinds of guys they were. And it really resonated with me. I hope that I would have done this anyway. uh, But maybe I'm giving myself too much credit. Uh, Over the years, I've become fairly well-known in our industry as being someone that will help young broadcasters. Anyone who wants to, regardless of their level of accomplishment can send me a tape. I'll critique it. I'll offer advice. I never am too busy for young broadcasters. Now I would like to give myself a pat on the back and say, I would have done that anyway, but I'm quite certain that the impact of having somebody like Bob Ryan and Marv Albert come up to me when I was an unknown and they were already well accomplished, well-respected and legendary figures was really something that stuck with me. And I've tried to do the same thing to guys who are younger than I am.
0: And Bob Ryan just started a podcast and he had Hubie Brown on his last week, which was a a fascinating listen. If you get the chance to to listen to that one, Um, you mentioned your radio partner, Bob Leonard, Slick Leonard, Pat Boylan, another one, Jeremiah Johnson and co two people are talking to huge audiences when you look at a broadcast. So when does the ego, I guess, try and raise its head
1: um, it's a good question, and I think it depends on who you're talking about. I can't imagine anybody that operates in this arena not having an ego. We're performers. So whether you're on radio or television or you're a musician or an actor or even a politician, ego comes into play. My belief is you can't succeed in these kinds of businesses unless you do have an ego. The question Or the gray area, though, comes here. Does your ego control you or do you control it? Uh, I have a healthy ego. I assume all of my peers do, too. Uh, But you need to realize that while some of us might be more difficult to replace than others, none of us are irreplaceable. And the day you forget that is the day that you've let your ego run amok and the day that you're going to have issues. Uh, I worked for a, a young, uh, well, I when, when I was a young guy, Max, I worked for a guy who was older than me when I was just starting out. Uh, and he said something to me that I doubt he came up with. And I've heard it since, but it really made an impact on me. And it's this, uh, be nice to the people you see on the way up because you're going to see them again on the way down. Uh, and if we are fortunate enough to stay around long enough, we always go down the other side of the hill and it's not that hard to treat people with respect and to treat people with even a, a modicum of, uh, compassion or whatever it is they need on a given day. Just not that hard. Uh, no, I'm not saying I'm perfect. Uh, I've, I've run afoul of people over the course of my career and I'm sure there are people that I've had dealings with who think that I'm not a nice fellow, uh, so be it but i try to do what i can to be respectful to people and treat people the way i would like to be treated and yes i have an ego and i'm sure mike breen has an ego and i'm sure anybody else you talk to has an ego Uh, but the guys that i really respect uh, are the guys that are really accomplished really good uh, and just seem like an average guy don't take it it doesn't get to their head Uh, they don't act like they're better than you are uh, like Marv and Bob, when they came up to me when I was a young guy, they didn't have to do that. And both of those guys, I can assure you, have very healthy egos, but they don't carry themselves that way. And I think that's important.
0: You mentioned the 90s era with the Pacers um, and something that we all were reminded of here in London before you guys came over in January to play Denver was where a lot of us were asked to talk about various periods in the history. So it was Carmelo and and ai coming together in denver and one of the things with indiana was reggie miller's eight points in nine seconds at madison square garden against the knicks this was such a huge rivalry and in such a short space of time that this happened it must have caught you by surprise as well I'm, I'm wondering on that stage how much information do you want to give to the listener and how much if you want to call it vin scully natural sound did you want to give which was probably dead silence in the garden
1: it's uh, It depends on whether you're doing a national broadcast or a local broadcast. When
0: you're doing a local broadcast,
1: which we were, I always assume a certain level of knowledge from the people that are following our broadcast. Now, that doesn't mean I don't fill in the blanks with information or context or historical data, but I think on a local level, you may not have to do that to the extent that you do at the national level, where you've got a lot of people who may be seeing your team for the first time, especially back in those days. Uh, Because the Pacers were not a force at all in the NBA. They came in in 76, and they didn't win a playoff series until 94. So that's 18 years without any success at all. Uh, And in a small market, uh, people just don't know who your players are. But the people in our market knew. And so when we got to the playoffs and finally won a series in 94, uh, that was the first time the Pacers and Knicks played. And they played in the conference finals in 94 and in 95. Uh, and then they played again in the playoffs in 98 and 99 uh, and 2000. Uh, and then again, more recently in the conference semifinals four or five years ago. That's a, that's a different era. But the era we're talking about, the 90s, first of all, the game was so different. And, and I'm not going to say the competition was more intense. That would be demeaning to today's players. But the game was more physical. More was allowed by the officials. Uh, the scores were in the 80s and 90s, not in the 110s. Uh, And so if you drove down the lane, chances are you were going to be on your back. Uh, A foul that would get you kicked out of today's game would just be a a regular foul back in the 90s. And so because the physical play was more intense, uh, the games, I think, were a little more bitter in nature. And then from our standpoint, you had the element of Indianapolis, one of the smallest towns in the NBA, against New York, the big monolithic giant. And that was played off in the media, and it really became quite a rivalry. In the game that you mentioned, the eight points and nine seconds, was part of that. Uh, we had another game in the conference finals in uh, 94. Uh, the series was tied to 2 to a best of seven, in the garden. Knicks were dominating the entire way, up by, I think, eight or ten after three. In that game, Reggie scored 25 points in the fourth quarter. And the Pacers won the game on the road in the garden, where they had won, I think, like two times in the last 19 visits. And so you accurately described the crowd that night in New York. It was almost mausoleum-like by the time the game got into the final last two minutes. And on radio, it's a little bit better to let the crowd tell the story when there is a crowd rather than when there's silence. And so you handle it a little bit differently. But it was a very exciting time for our franchise. uh, And Reggie Miller became an iconic figure during those years.
0: On that eight points in nine seconds specifically, what was running through your head? Well,
1: I I thought, like almost everyone else, that the Knicks had the game in the bag, and they would have had they not made a series of catastrophic mistakes themselves. People remember the eight points in nine seconds, and that is fabulous. Uh, But they forget that John Starks missed two free throws in that sequence. Uh, The Knicks were out of timeouts, and Anthony Mason panicked and threw a ball in from the backcourt, threw it right to Reggie, who should have been called for an offensive foul on a push-off. It wasn't. (laughs) There were a whole bunch of little things during that sequence of events uh, that culminated in the eight points and nine seconds, which isn't to demean what Reggie did. You still have to make the shots in a high-pressure situation. But if Starks doesn't miss the free throws, for example, it's a whole different story. Uh, and it, was, it wasn't until the buzzer sounded that I actually thought the Pacers were going to win the game. It, was, it wasn't lost, loss, literally because obviously they went on to win the game, but in the NBA game again, and this was not against a bottom feeder. The Knicks were a very good team uh, and they were a very difficult out in the playoffs. So they were a top shelf team playing at home. They not controlled the whole game, but they had had their way for much of it. And they were in a position to nail it down. And here comes this guy out of nowhere with eight points in nine seconds. And all of a sudden the game is lost on the home floor. So, my feeling during those final seconds was more or less disbelief.
0: I think it's important that people know where you were in your story. Uh, 2004, every big NBA fan knows about the Malice at the Palace. Pistons, Pacers, two of the best Eastern Conference teams there were out there right then. Ron Artest fouls Ben Wallace. Uh, what happened to you from there?
1: Well, long story short is this. I ended up fracturing five vertebrae when ron went into the stands if you saw that video you saw that everybody sort of congregated over at the scorers table as the officials were trying to sort out what discipline should be handed out because it was the end of the game uh, and ronnie had fouled ben wallace very hard and the play drifted over to the scorers table and there was pushing and shoving and cursing and all of the things you might expect uh and ultimately this guy from the stands threw a cup of beer onto Ronnie and he jumped up and went into the stands and he was laying on the scores table right in front of me. I could have reached out and touched him. And in fact, we had our headphones, our spare set of headphones laid out there because we were anticipating bringing a player right over after the game for a post game interview. Now we all knew Ronnie by then he'd been with us for a while. And to this day, he's one of my all time favorite pacers that said, in those days especially, he was a tad unstable. So we didn't have those, uh, that headset microphone on. It was just sitting there. But he put it on. Uh, and people asked me for years after that, was, was Ronnie talking to you? Were you interviewing him? Well, no, he just was laying on the table and he put it on. Well, the guy throws the beer and Ronnie leaps to his feet. And as he starts to go into the stands, I instinctively jumped up and tried to stop him. Uh, And keep in mind, I'm six feet, 185 pounds, and in his prime, he's whatever, 6'8", 250. So A, I had no chance, and B, he trampled me, and I landed flat on my back, and right behind where we were seated, the floor was cement. Uh, And it didn't really dawn on me at first that I was injured, because he'd also cut open my forehead, and I was bleeding all over the place. And it wasn't until later that my back started to stiffen up and I realized that maybe I should go get a check. And I did go get an MRI and it was fractured in five places, which sounds a lot worse than it is. It healed fine and I'm okay now. Uh, And when you're in the middle of something like that, you don't really grasp what it is. You're in the moment. The whole thing lasted. uh, Well, there were there were things that happened after that. The game was immediately called uh, and then. Fans came onto the floor, and there were skirmishes between players and fans. I don't know how long the whole thing lasted, but the sequence I'm describing to you probably lasted less than five minutes. And while you're in the middle of it, you don't really comprehend what it is. But then when you get a chance to get some distance and step back uh, and realize how – well, pick your own term there. Uh, Captivating wouldn't necessarily be the right term, although it certainly was – compelling would fall into the same category it changed the league Uh, the league then put in in the years after that different things about player dress code and player behavior and they changed the way the security was in the various buildings but in that five minute stretch when you're in the moment you don't realize how really threatening it was when you look back on it and you see some of the things that happened you realize that it actually could have been a lot worse Uh, there were some fans that ran out onto the floor and I specifically remember one of them coming out and running right at Jermaine O'Neal, and Jermaine, in an attempt to defend himself, uh, took a swing at this guy, and had he not slipped, he might have killed that guy. At the very worst, he would have injured him severely. And there were a lot of other things that night that could have happened, uh, too. Uh, They tried to arrest several of our players. Uh, The security people in the palace told us that when we left the building uh, in our bus to go to the airport, we should turn the lights out in case anyone wanted to take a shot at us. Uh, It was really a a tense, tense time. But in the moment, Max, you didn't really realize that. It just seemed not literally like another night at the office. Uh, We knew it was unusual. I remember being in the locker room after the game and players speculating on what punishment there might be. And Ronnie uh, said to uh, Jamal Tinsley and Steven Jackson, uh, do you guys think we'll get suspended? (laughs) And... They started laughing because they realized the severity of it more than he did. But even so, uh, none of us expected the severity of the suspensions to be what they were. Uh, There hadn't been precedent for that. And uh, we were thinking maybe a guy would get suspended for 10 games. Well, Ronnie got docked for the rest of the season. And that was only the ninth or tenth game of the year. So the unfortunate part in the big picture for the Pacers was And I'm not saying they would have won the championship. You never know. Injuries come into play. And this team was immature and emotionally unstable. And they might have found another way to screw things up. Uh, But I say this to you with confidence, and it's the only time in my 29 years that I felt the Pacers had this. Uh, That was the most talented team in the NBA. And they had lost to the Pistons in the conference finals the year previous. Uh, And so this was a big early season matchup, and the Pacers were just pasting them on their home floor. Uh, and the pistons then went on to get into the finals again and lose in game 7 and the pacers had a better team than they did. Now the pistons were more mature and more together uh, and they deserved their championship and I'm not saying the pacers would have beaten them but they had a more talented team and it was all too bad.
0: That's crazy story. We we're, we're talking to Mark Boyle radio radio play-by-play broadcaster for the Indiana Pacers. There's something in the, the reason I heard your name first was les carpenter who works at the guardian in new york um a good colleague former colleague of mine good friend he wrote an article about you in the summer of 2015 when he when you became the backup voice of the yarmouth dennis red Sox of the cape cod leagues internet network there are some fascinating nuggets in that article but can we just start with the baseball you weren't the primary caller you aren't being paid i love that you took this post did you did this go back to your baseball fandom growing up, or was it something deeper than that?
1: It was mostly that, but it was also by then my desire to work with young broadcasters. And I got into broadcasting myself to do baseball, but my career took me in another direction. And I had some really wonderful opportunities when I was really young that would it would have been foolish not to take advantage of. And my career went in another direction. I was fortunate enough to be working in the NHL when I was in my mid-20s. I was in the NBA when I was in my late 20s. I was in the Big Ten, uh, which is a major college league in basketball and football here in the States in my early 20s. And so baseball, while it was always my passion, uh, I never had a chance to do it. And in these jobs, you have some downtime in the summer. And I've always wanted to use that downtime – To explore other things. I never wanted to be a one-dimensional, hey, I'm a sports guy type of a person. Not that there's anything wrong with that. If that's your deal, then good for you. But I didn't want it to be my deal. I wanted to be a person with multiple interests. And so over the years, I've used my summers to do a lot of different things. And in 2005, uh, I decided to do some minor league baseball. Now in the U.S., Major League Baseball teams all have several lower league affiliates. They're minor league teams where they develop their players. And every one of those teams has at least one or two of what they call short season teams. They don't start playing until June and they finish around Labor Day. And that could fit into my schedule. So in 2005, I went out to Billings, Montana and did a summer of minor league baseball, the lowest level there is. They call it rookie ball. And I did uh, 76 games in 82 days and I had a blast. You know, that's that was the summer after the brawl that we just talked about. And I went from flying on charter planes and staying in five-star hotels to five-hour bus rides, staying in motels with cockroaches. Not literally, but it was a big step down. And I loved every minute of it. So now we fast forward to 2015, and I wanted to do some baseball again. But I wanted to do it in a part of the country where I hadn't really spent much time. And... This Yarmouth Dennis team that you refer to, Max, is in a league called the Cape Cod League. Uh, Cape Cod is a place up there in Massachusetts in the States. It's a, a very idyllic area. It's a, a big summer vacation area. It's just breathtakingly beautiful, really laid back. And this Cape Cod League is a summer league for the elite college players in the United States. It's by invitation only. And so all of the players are from colleges, and some have been drafted in in u.s baseball you can be drafted and still go to school without signing and so many of them had been drafted they were all top prospects you had to be either uh, a sophomore or a sophomore to be coming out of your freshman year or a junior to be coming out of your sophomore year and there were 10 teams and every one of them put their games on the internet uh, and there were two broadcasters for every team Uh, so it was 19 college interns and myself I got to spend the summer doing three innings of play-by-play a night. I worked with a young man named Anthony Santanello, who was at Hofstra University at the time. uh, And he was the lead guy. And then as we went around and played teams in our league, and the other thing that was great about this league, uh, there were no road tips, only road games. No game was further than 45 minutes away from where I was. So no matter where you played, you went home and slept in the same bed. And so I sent a letter to every one of these Cape Cod League teams and told them what I wanted to do. And this Yarmouth Dennis team got back to me and they said, we would love to have you, uh, but you need to understand that we don't pay. And I said, okay, I'm not doing it for the money. I want to come out there and do baseball. And I want to uh, work with these young broadcasters. And they said, okay, but we don't pay. I said, that's okay with me, but can you find me a place to live that won't cost me a fortune? And there was a lady who lived about, a mile from uh, where we played our games, and she had a loft in her house uh, that she rented to me for $80 a week. So really, it cost me $80 a week and whatever I spent (laughs) on gas and food, uh, and I didn't get paid. So I guess uh, in in net terms, it's a loss. But I I can't even articulate what a great experience it was for me. I got to do baseball, which I loved. Uh, I, I got to work with these young kids, which was so rewarding to me. And I still stay in touch with some of them. Uh, You know, I see them when we go on road trips to their cities, and it's really cool for me to see them doing well. Uh, You know, that's two summers ago, uh, and some of them have graduated from college by now. Others are about to, and they're starting their careers. uh, And to see how they've evolved and how they've developed as young professionals, uh, and to stay in touch with them, not only is something I've always wanted to do, but I think on some level it, it helps me keep thinking young. Uh, I'm not too unlike, you know, the old get off my lawn, uh, Clint Eastwood character in that movie he made a few years ago.
0: Uh,
1: and we all have stereotypes, Max, and I, and I have um, I've been guilty of this one. Uh, I start to think that young people are lazy or not driven. And of course, some of them are lazy and aren't driven, just as, by the way, some of my generation was lazy and not driven. But we don't see that. We think we're hard workers and they're lazy. And I had started to fall into that stereotype, but to see these kids who gave up their summer who weren't getting paid either uh, to learn how to do their craft uh, was, A, eye-opening to me. And hanging around with young people is, uh, is something that I like to do because it helps me keep thinking young. Uh, the difference between hip and cool is considerable. You can be cool till you die. But you can't be hip until you uh, pass, what, your 25th birthday, 30th? I don't know what it is. And the guy who's 50 and tries to be hip is an idiot. So I try to hang around with hip people because I learn things from them, and it reminds me that I can't be hip, and I hope that I am able to uh, teach them as much as they're teaching me.
0: What was the most minor league thing you saw?
1: Oh, good question. Uh this was, in the in the Cape Cod League, I didn't see much in the way of minor league stuff because A, it wasn't professional, uh, and B, Cape Cod is a very affluent area, uh, and so there wasn't a lot that you would associate with minor leagues, but the summer I was in Billings in 05 with that rookie league team, I saw a lot of, of things. We had kids come in from major college U.S. programs who had been drafted by the Cincinnati Reds. That was Uh, the uh, parent team, the major league team that Billings was affiliated with. And they would talk about how their facilities at their colleges were way better than this facility that the Reds were putting their kids in in Billings. Um, We had rats in the locker room once in a while. Uh, uh, You know, the pregame meal consisted of peanut butter sandwiches, uh, things that you wouldn't associate with big league uh, travel. We stayed in tiny little hotels. Um, you know, from my perspective, I had to carry all my own equipment and set it up, which I didn't even know how to do till I got there, uh, because we have guys that do that for us at the NBA level. So there were a lot of little things, uh, you know, in the in the context of the real world, they weren't bad. But in the context of comparing major league lifestyle to minor league lifestyle, um, it, it was different. Uh, our per diem was $25 a day. In, in the NBA, it's $114. Uh, And and uh, I had forgotten how difficult it was to eat on $25 a day. In fact, you can't. So you've got to go into your own pocket. Uh, And again, I'm not complaining. The whole experience was really rewarding. But there are a lot of differences between the minor leagues and the major leagues.
0: There was a long list of things you've done this summer as well. There's plenty of things to read about. Piranha hunting in the Amazon. You worked as a barrister one summer. U.S. Open chess tournament. Indiana, uh, Indianapolis Symphony, you walked 500 miles across Indiana raising money for the Wish Fund. Uh, my favorite one, I think, of the list was you filled in as a meteorologist on the NBC affiliate in Indianapolis. Is that is that English for a weatherman?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, How did that it's, go? Uh, it's fancy TV talk. for well, The rest of us in the real world call it weatherman. Uh, but in the uh, TV world, they call them meteorologists, which they are. Uh, they have degrees in meteorology from colleges. I, I think they think the term enhances their credibility, uh, which maybe it does. It was it was really surreal. I don't know if you know this, but uh, and I don't really know how they do it in UK. But if you watch the weather on television, is the guy or gal standing in front of a big map?
0: It's a green screen, right? Yeah,
1: there's nothing on there.
0: Yeah,
1: I didn't know that till I got there. <laughs> well, you ha- you have a teleprompter and you can see the map, but you have to coordinate your pointing with the map that's right in front of you. And it's a little bit difficult until you get the hang of it. Yeah, you're standing right in front of a green screen. There's nothing behind you. Uh, the viewer sees that there's something behind you, but they somehow use their technology uh, to translate all of that. It seems to me that it would be just be easier to put a map there and let you point at it, but for whatever reason, they don't do that. <laughs> and it was fun. I enjoyed it.
0: Yes, yeah, it's, 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 very, very, it's very interesting. It's, you get better at geography, I'm sure, having to remember all that stuff. Uh, last couple for you, Mark. <laughs> Is there an activity that you've done that isn't on that list that is very public indeed?
1: Well, um, let's see. I do a lot of charity work, and part of that was the 500-mile walk. We raised money there for an organization called the Indiana Children's Wish Fund, which grants wishes to terminally ill children. Uh, we raised $50,000 on that walk, and that was part of that. Uh, but most of the stuff that I've done on that list... Uh, is either A, something I wanted to do, or B, something the Pacers came up with, or C, a collaboration. For example, uh, the 500-mile walk. I wanted to see if I could walk 500 miles. It was just that simple. And I was going to use the summer to do it. Uh, And when I mentioned it to one of our PR people, they said, you know, there might be a way where we can uh, turn that into something to help raise money for charity. Do you have any charities that you like? And I mentioned the Wish Fund. So the Pacers and the Wish Fund and myself got together and we figured out how to do this. And I see now in retrospect that I guess I could have done it myself by walking around the block enough times to reach 500 miles. But the way we ended up doing it, it it needed a great deal of coordination that I never would have been able to come up with. So it was a collaboration. Uh, And sometimes I'll bring my ideas to them. Uh, Typically, I have to go to them anyway, because even though we don't have games in the summer, I'm under contract 12 months a year. And they do have us doing some things in the summer, not a lot, an occasional appearance here and there. So I need to go to them and say, hey, listen, I need uh, six months, uh, six weeks here. I want to do this. Is that okay? Can I be gone then? Yeah. And they almost always say, yeah. And when I brought that 500-mile thing to them, uh, they said, yeah, that would be cool. We'd like to get involved with that. Other stuff is just mine. Uh, You know, I did stand-up comedy for a while in the summer a few years ago. I did community theater. Uh, Those were just my own ideas. And whenever I can, I try to raise money for charity doing it. Uh, the summer I was a barista I made. Uh, what do baristas make? I probably minimum wage, I don't remember. but uh, we donated that money to charity. Uh, I did that just because I wanted to see what it was like to work in a coffee shop. Is it true? So Starbucks sometimes they send you down? <laughs>
0: yeah, they did. Here's what happened. <laughs> Those I, uh, bastards, you know I've been back.
1: <laughs> uh, there's a, there was a Starbucks about four blocks up the street from where I live. so I went up there. And I told them uh, that I wanted to be a barista. And they said, you know, fill out the sheet. So I filled out the application form. And on it, I put that I was available to work until the middle of September. Because we go to training camp at the end of September. And so I filled it out, and they never got back to me. So I walked down there to check on it. And I got to the manager. And I said, uh, I would like to uh, work here. Did you get my application? Oh, yes, she said. We got it. We looked at it. I said, well, do you have jobs? And she said, we do, but we don't hire temporary help. And I said, this is a coffee shop. Isn't everybody in here temporary help? No one makes a career being a Starbucks barista, do they? Everybody in there was either a college kid uh, who was making money in the summer or an older person who uh, was doing something just to keep busy. There there were no career baristas who were moving up the uh, professional chain in there, and so I went on a local radio station and told this story. And one of the local coffee houses here heard it. They have five different locations in Indianapolis. And they called me and said, You can work for us anytime you want. So I spent the summer uh, working in each of their five places and had a blast.
0: That's so funny. That's great. Uh, just quickly on ESPN and what's been happening there the layoff barrage the other day, we had names like Ed Verder, Mark Stein, Chad Ford, Andy Katz, Jason Stark, people that. You know i read a lot of and it fascinates me not least because it seems like radio has stayed fairly consistent in its approach but espn according to si 39 billion they have committed to the three major sports leagues in college football and it used to be all about news information highlights but it doesn't seem that way anymore what have you made of of that change and and also how it's going in the radio industry
1: Well, I'm not really qualified to speak for them in terms of why they do things. But from the standpoint of someone who's a consumer and someone who works in the industry, it's really disheartening because in my day, especially in the newspaper game, the print game, it was all about journalism. ESPN didn't come into play until 1978 when I was just starting my career. And so ESPN was a non-entity for a little while, and then they started doing college games, and pretty soon they became a monolith and the most dominant television sports source in America. And they were making money for a long time. My belief from the outside looking in is that they dramatically overpaid for rights, uh, which does not bode well for leagues like ours, because next time when the contract comes up, it stands to reason that we're not going to get as much money, which affects all of us. Uh, But really, from a consumer standpoint, the more disappointing thing is the journalism. Um, I'm not that familiar with how things work over there, Max. I don't know if you even get ESPN, but if you could, you would see that they have changed from being just what you said they were, news, highlights, reports. Uh, Now it's uh, two guys screaming at one another for an hour. Yeah, the 6 p.m. Uh,
0: show is new as well, isn't it? You've got the the six o'clock new sports center, everything's more, I think more personality driven. Yeah.
1: And maybe that will work for them. I'm not going to say they're wrong. I don't know what their goal is. And I don't know what generates interest or money these days. Maybe they're on the right path. But from the standpoint of the consumer of my age, and I'm in my mid fifties, it's disappointing. I like journalism and I know some of those people that were laid off and they are top shelf journalists in many cases. And many of them, I assume, will land on their feet somewhere because they're that good. And there's always going to be a place for journalism. Uh, As for radio, the way it has changed from when I came up in radio is this. Uh, We have a lot of big corporations running a lot of radio stations now. And it's changed the way things are. Back in the day, if you got in your car on the East Coast and decided you wanted to drive to the West Coast, and you listen to radio all the way obviously you'd have to change stations as as the signals change and you moved into different parts of the country but you could drive all the way across the country and hear a million different things a million different shows the emphasis was on local programming now in the current era you can make that same drive and there is so much syndication ESPN radio is in every market now and it's cut out some of the local programming uh, and ESPN is not the only one. Syndication is very big in radio here. Uh, and when I started, everybody that worked at a local radio station uh, was on the air. The stations were small, and you had multiple jobs. And uh, I did farm reports and news reports, and high school games and everything else. It's, it was easy to get a job then if you were willing to move around. I grew up in Minnesota, and I took my first job in Montana, which was about 1,000 miles away. Today, it's not quite so easy. Because many of the stations that were having local programming and doing local high school games aren't doing it anymore. And so while there are just as many jobs, there are different kinds of jobs now. Uh, And I think in my day, it was easier to get the repetitions you needed to get better. Because virtually every small town radio station was doing a whole bunch of high school football games and high school basketball games. And that's not necessarily the case anymore. There still are but not at the same volume level or the same volume number. And the chance to get better is not, I think, as good as it was in my day. And we'll see how it plays out. Ultimately, the listener decides whether or not a philosophy is successful. And back in the day, we didn't have Sirius or XM or national radio. Everything was local. So it was all different. I'm not going to be one of these old taji guys who says it was better. I liked it better as a listener, but that's probably because I grew up listening to it. It's just different, uh, and it changes by the day. That's the other thing you have to be aware of. and It goes back to what we were talking about with social media. You need to pay attention to what's happening, because even if you don't think you need to be on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, or even if you don't think you need to do the things you need to do to be on local television now, you need to pay attention because the world is changing, and if you don't change with it or at least adapt to it, uh, then you're going to be in trouble.
0: I have one Pacers question for you, only one. So, Larry Bird stepped down as president of Basketball Ops. Kevin Pritchard takes over. Jeff T could be a free agent this summer, and there's no signs about Paul George. What's he going to do? Is he going to go to the Lakers? Is he going to stay? Is he going to get that big money if he makes the All-NBA team? Do you think this team is going in the right direction?
1: Well, if you're looking for a yes or no, then I would say yes, but it's a grayer area than that, really. Uh, They've done some good things, and given their restrictions here, this is a small market, and they've made the playoffs 22 times in 29 years. They don't have the resources some of the larger markets do. Uh, They've never torn it up and started over by being a bottom feeder and trying to get good draft choices. They've always been competitive, and they remain competitive. This was a disappointing season for them. But in the big picture, I still think they're doing things the right way, and I think that they're headed in the right direction. Now, all of that could change if Paul George decides he doesn't want to come back and forces the Pacers into trading him. You can still come out okay on that if you have to do it, but you need to make sure you get as large a return as you can. That's not always easy. So I say yes to your question, uh, but if you call me in two, four, six, twelve, fifteen 12, 15 months, the answer might be different depending on how the Paul George thing plays out.
0: Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time today. Um, you, you do like to write on your Instagram posts. MJB one real job nil. What does this? Uh, <laughs> what are you going to do next to stick it to the world?
1: Well, I've got a, a few commitments this summer, so I can't be quite as bold as I'd like to be. Uh, but my small project is this: I'm going to spend as much time at Bankers Life Fieldhouse, which is where the Pacers play, as I can, doing different jobs. For example. Uh, I am planning on being an usher at a concert. I am planning. Uh, you know what a zamboni is? Do they have zambonis over there? <laughs> I
0: don't know what that is. A zamboni
1: me. is one of those. It's one of those great big giant things. If you go to an ice show or a hockey game, it's that thing that comes out between periods and resurfaces the ice. It's a it's a giant four wheel thing. You got to learn how to drive it. Uh, I'm going to drive a zamboni uh, during an ice show and resurface the ice. I want to do that. Uh, I'm going to be a ball boy at a WNBA game and whatever else they can find for me to do over there. Uh, It'll keep me in town where I have some commitments and some obligations that I have to take care of this summer, but it'll allow me to see the world from a different perspective or two, and I'm kind of looking forward to it.
0: (laughs) Well, I love your thirst for life, and uh, thanks for your time. I hope everyone enjoyed it that listened.
1: Anytime, Max. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thank you to Mark, and hey, out of loyalty to my podcast, and especially to Mark, I don't think I'm going to be purchasing anything from Starbucks ever again. But I've always been a prep guy anyway, so that shouldn't be a problem. By the way, if you want to get in touch with me here on the show, your best bet is Twitter. I'm at Max underscore Whittle. I'd love to take your questions for the next episode, a mailbag of sorts. So please get your questions in, anything you've got to say about the show. But next up, let's keep the guests coming. The Raptors currently trial the Cavaliers 2-0 in their second round playoff series. A man who's witnessed the non-human behaviour of LeBron James and the very average behaviour of the Raptors team. Mike Ganter of the Toronto Sun. He joins us now. Mike, you just drove back from Cleveland. How, how are you feeling?
2: A uh, little, little, uh, little tired, uh, but um, came back, to uh, got to the BioSteel Center where the Raptors practice and uh, basically found the exact same um, situation as we did about this time last year, although I guess last year it was in the Eastern Conference Final. This year's the Eastern Conference Semifinal. Down to nothing. The Raptors looking for answers and looking rather beleaguered.
0: Yeah, I guess on the news front, is there any word on Kyle Lowry's status at the moment? He got hurt in Game 2, obviously.
2: Yeah, he got hurt in Game 2. Um, uh, got uh, Tristan Thompson basically threw Norm Powell into him, uh, rolled up on his ankle. Um, he went for an MRI today. If I were a betting man, I would say we were, were not going to see him in Game 3 um, just because he didn't practice today and he was... Uh, Barely putting much weight on it at all. Last night, when we did see him leave the uh, the interview room, so um, I'm not I'm not 100 sure on that, uh, Max. But I I would be surprised to see him in uniform tomorrow night, which means Corey Joseph would be uh, your de facto starter at point guard for the Raptors.
0: So here we are again. Really, you touched on it already. It's a semifinal series, not the conference finals. But the Cavs are two nil up. A lot of people say that series don't begin until a road a road team wins a road game. But the Cavs have been up 12 after the first quarter in both of these games. It, does this feel very similar to you, or does it look like a different series?
2: No, this looks very, very, very similar to last year. I mean, they went into Cleveland last year and got blown out in the first two games, came home and won the next two. Now, they also came home last year this time with a, a, a complete uh, or a healthy lineup. I mean, Lowry wasn't hurt. So that is that is one major difference. Um I don't know if they can come back here and get two games. I don't know if they can come back here and get one game, to be honest, because they're uh, Lebron James is looking so much more um, energized and determined, and use um, whatever word you want to use. He's just he is making this hit series his own, and he seems to be just taking the life right out of Toronto, and uh, it is uh, it's been rather one sided so far.
0: Yeah, his play is, is scary at the moment. I, I was in Boston a few weeks ago for that Cavaliers-Celtic game in the regular season when the Cavs just went in there and there was all this hype about how big it was for the Celtics and they didn't even turn up. The Cavaliers crushed them and James was just... He looks 25. He, does, he doesn't he does look his age at all and now obviously second in scoring in the playoffs. Um, the, the the Game 2 changes, though, if we focus on the Raptors. Patrick Patterson yep. comes into the starting lineup for Damari Carroll. Norman Powell yep. is in for Valanchunas. So Dwayne Casey's going small. Is the conundrum here that you have Powell, so essentially no one to guard LeBron?
2: Yeah, I, and I don't think they have. I mean, PJ Tucker does as good a job as anybody on LeBron. I mean, he gets into him. He doesn't get he doesn't get pushed off his spot quite as quite as easily as LeBron seems to just sort of shrug everybody else off, and uh, and and he he manages to he manages to man him up. But I mean, so now you've got Norm, Norman Powell. Who actually did it? He did an okay job last night. Like he was when he was on the floor with LeBron, he seemed to be, you know, doing okay. He wasn't he wasn't outclassed. But I mean, LeBron now, he I mean, his three point game, he's just. I don't know if you saw the. I don't know if you saw the replays of this. Um, Serge Ibaka went out to him at the three point line, and and James just he basically twirled the ball on his. He was fingertips. twirling the
0: ball around and around. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Twice.
2: He, he did it twice, <laughs> and then just drained a three. And then they came down the floor again, and this time he didn't, you know, do his little show-off move, but he did just drain the exact same three from the exact same spot against the exact same defender. It just seems like right now he can do whatever he wants on the court. And, and I, I don't think I'm even exaggerating. I think that is actually the case. He, he, you know, if he needs to score, he'll score. And if he, if he wants to defer and, and, and put the ball in you know, um, Kyrie's hands or somebody else's hands, They'll do that. And the people around them, they're not playing at his level. Kyrie might be close, I guess. I mean, he's distributing the ball awfully nicely. He's over 10 assists in each of the first two games, but it just seems that no matter what they do, it's working for them. And I mean, I, I, the Raptors aren't playing perfect defense by any stretch of the imagination, but they're not playing bad defense. They're, they're, they're trying, they're there, but it just seems even when they're there, Cleveland makes the shot anyway. And it's, it's, I mean if you could see the frustration in the faces of the Raptors today I mean we only got to talk to we talked to DeMar uh DeMar DeRozan and uh, Corey Joseph and they both look just beaten down like and and talked about the frustration level and how we've got a we've just got to keep trying and we just got to keep going out there and it almost seems like even they can't believe it can be this one-sided and stay this one-sided uh past the two games that it's already been and it's just it is so. I mean, the frustration level. I guess is that is my, my point. Is their frustration level is so high? It almost feels like the series is already over.
0: And that twirling thing—it's something you do at the three for a line. And I, I, I watched DeRozan's uh, media after the game, and I don't know if it was you asking the question about, you know, what can you take? Is there any positives you can take back to mm-hmm. Toronto uh, at the end there? But he kept saying that it sucks, and he'd pay someone a hundred dollars if they could guard LeBron and almost admitting defeat, like you say. But one of the things he did so well during the regular season was that re-screen, the patience he uses on the ball. He manipulates that element of the game. But the Cavs in this series, double-teaming him, 23 times in the first half, they're trapping him high. Played 31 minutes in game two, five points on 2 of 11 shooting. So my question to you is, how is J.R. Smith, who guarded Paul George in round one, and the rest of the Cavs attacking DeRozan on defence?
2: yeah well right now it's 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 almost like a it's a it's a soft it's a soft blitz almost there's so you've got Jair's doing a great job on him. don't get me wrong, but jr's doing this job and he's pushing him on and as soon as as soon as the screen comes out to to get JR out of the way, Kyrie is right there and and he's forcing him back and then they reswitch, and now you've got j r. back on him um, according to DeMar, that's not new. he's seen this before. What is new is the fact that LeBron's in the background lurking, basically playing free safety. Mm. And he, I think he's in his head in that he's afraid to make that pass or he's afraid to just let go with the pass that he thinks he should make because um, in game one, well, early in game one, actually, LeBron jumped a couple of those routes and just took it the other way. And, and, and now I think it's in his head. I'm not sure what the answer is, um, maybe maybe you occupy you occupy lebron some other way you force him somewhere else but i mean with him back there playing free safety and then those two with, with kyrie and 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 jr up on on demar and blitzing and basically forcing the ball out of his hands he's, he's hesitant to make that pass and he's not quite as as confident making that pass as he's been in the in the past and uh and it's all lebron again he's he's back there lurking and just ready to jump whatever he does and like I said, I think LeBron's in his head.
0: I I heard I heard DeRozan's quote about that free safety, which surprised me because simply because he's not downplaying LeBron's play at all. He's not he's not trying to suggest that he he's he's beatable. But are we circling back to the three point weakness of DeRozan and the, and the reality that he has to enter the so called James death zone to get his points?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, he 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 can he is capable of making that three point shot now. It's not, it's not, he's not a, he's not a three point shooter by any stretch, but he can make the odd one and make defenses respect that. But I mean, right now, even that, that's not even available to him because like I said, that blitz is, he's, if, if James isn't, or if, uh, if J.R. Smith isn't right there, then Kyrie's right there. Um, Dwayne Casey last night said he just has to get vertical, rise up and take that shot over them or rise up and then find someone to find some find the open man because if lebron is playing that free safety somebody is somebody is open right i mean you there's five bodies on each team and if lebron's not attached to one of them and two of them are attached to to demar at that point then there are people who are open and that's that was casey's point today is that we have to make them pay when they when they send those two out and when they got when lebron's back there and he's not necessarily on a man or Preventing a man from get from taking or from getting the ball, then they there has to be somebody open. And he said that is our that is our uh, that is our answer to how we beat this. Um, but like I said, right now Demar is just he's just hesitant to make that pass because he's. I think it's in his head that he he's convinced that no matter what he does, LeBron's going to just jump the jump the route and and take the ball and go the other way.
0: Patrick Patterson's performance: 17 minutes in Game Two, three points, four assists. I feel like he's the one who has to go. For this team to reach their potential, he does a lot of things, communicates well, sets good screens, and when he's got his three-point shooting going, it's again, it's a it's a release plug for 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 Larry DeRozan. But yeah, I mean, it hasn't happened so far. What what's going on there? I, that's
2: a great that's a great question because he is not. I mean, he started to hit his. I think he hit is it just one last night or two last night. Anyway, he finally hit one or two of them last night. And if he but if he's not hitting the three, he's almost uh, he's almost he almost. Put you down a man on offense because that's basically his 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 contribution. He's got to stretch defenses, stay out stay out beyond the three point line, and then hit that shot. And if he can do that, then they have to they have to acknowledge him and they have to cover him. And that's one less body that can be roaming around. And maybe maybe that's James. Maybe James has to stick to him, and maybe he can't leave him. And then maybe that that that, that secondary pass from Demar out out of the trap is is available to him. But right now, it's just not there. There, like, Pat has not been hitting a three-point shot. Um, I'm sure he's still communicating. You still see him working his tail off on defense. But at the other end of the floor, he's just—it's—it's uh, it's a zero down there, and uh, that's got to change. Otherwise, the Raptors' offense—you're right. I mean, he—they need him. They need him to be a factor, or at least a threat. And right now, he's neither.
0: Talking of zeros, Damari Carroll didn't score in 90 minutes last night. <laughs> <laughs> have you, no. Sorry, Damari. Have, have you given up on a Hawks Carroll?
2: Yeah, no, the Hawks Carroll is, exactly. I mean, that, he's a he's thing of the past. And, and again, you can thank LeBron for that. I was, I was at that series. It was the Eastern Conference Final two, two years ago now. And LeBron took him out. Uh, there was a knee injury. He came back and finished the series on a bad knee. And then in the offseason, had this had surgery or sorry in the off he ends up signing in Toronto and uh, to a lucrative contract a lucrative deal uh, it's over sixty million and he he is just he is nowhere near the same player he was before that incident and before that injury uh, trying to trying to guard LeBron and I'm pretty I'm pretty sure it was Game One of the Eastern Conference Final. But like I said, I remember he, he, uh, he came back, he played the remaining three games because Atlanta got swept, and he played basically on one leg and chased, uh, chased LeBron around, and uh, he has never been the same player since. And, I mean, it's one of those cases. He was great. He was, he was a guy who stretched the floor. He would hit his threes. He'd play tough defense. And, you know, when they signed that contract, it was like, wow, if you get the Atlanta, if you get the Atlanta, Jamare, you're getting a great guy. But uh, they didn't. And uh, it's his body has just never been the same. And therefore, his his work has just never been the same since.
0: You talked about uh, DeRozan being in his own head. Get playoff, yep. playoff Carl Lowry, as we as you like to call it. I mean, Milwaukee <laughs> yep. Bucks series in game one of that series. Lowry was terrible and he picked it up. But is he still in his own head because it seems like he's he's arrogant and confident enough during the regular season to just carry that on
2: yeah no he's arrogant and he's still confident i mean that that doesn't go away we're still talking about Kyle here right
0: <laughs> we are <laughs>
2: yeah okay so yeah he is definitely arrogant and he is definitely confident and uh, that he'll never lose that um but you are right there is a there is there is the animal they call playoff Kyle Lowry and he uh he is about half the player that regular season Kyle Lowry is, and I'm not sure what that says about the guy because he's just not. It's it's not just a it's not just a, a short term trend. This has been this has been Kyle throughout his career. He gets to the playoffs and he's not the player he was, and uh, I don't have an answer for it. I still see the same bravado from him. The I'll be better. I know I'll be better um challenging reporters who you know even dare to question his abilities in the playoffs I mean he that that doesn't go away but he uh, like I said I mean right now he's almost a moot point because he is he's hurt and um like I said I, I I'll be shocked if we see him in game three I mean he's he, I'll, I'll never underestimate his toughness but this is an ankle injury and it doesn't matter how tough you are if you can't walk on your leg or if you can't Put weight on your leg, then you can't play. And uh, I mean, an MRI today. We haven't heard the uh, results of that, but uh, I guess we're going to find out uh, tomorrow night before uh, before game three.
0: Yeah, I said I saw in game two as well. Valentunis and Joseph were the two leading scorers. Now Valentunis was missing in the same series last year. People said that he was the missing piece. Uh, he led the team with twenty three last night, but has he forgotten how to post up a little? It seems like it looks a little bit awkward. Uh, if, if, does that make, does that make sense to you? Well, no, I, I I don't think he's forgotten how to post up. He is just he, he's working against Tristan Thompson, who is
2: a, a crafty defender. The problem with JV's game right now is is when he when he ends up on the floor with Channing Fry, he is that is the worst matchup possible for Toronto. I mean, I don't know if you, it was second. I think it was second quarter last night, maybe end of the first, and he comes into the game because Ibaka gets his second foul and is just looking completely lost. And he comes in and it's Fry. No, it was the end of the first quarter. And it's Fry on the as as the big on the floor for uh for the for the Cavs. And he doesn't he doesn't play in the post. He he just he just roams out out, you know, at the three point line. And uh so but when you ask J V to, to to guard that he is he's completely lost. There was a there was a series last night where PJ Tucker had LeBron and just locked him down. Like it was it was the most impressive sort of four and a half seconds of defense on LeBron James I've seen this entire series. LeBron went left and he went left and LeBron went right and PJ went right. And he just locked him up. And as soon as and then as you know clock or shot clock's mining down and he just pitches it back to Fry standing in the corner and I, I couldn't I, – I was blocked up by the backboard, so I couldn't even see where JV had gotten to at that point or Tunis had gotten to. But Fry drains an un, basically an uncontested three, and, you know, all that defense goes for naught. So I don't think JV's problem is his offense. Um, his postgame is still there. He's actually added uh, – he, he, he's spinning back to his, to his left now. I think that's uh, um, a Jack Sikma uh, addition to his, uh, to his arsenal. But he, uh, so offensively, he's fine. But defensively, he's a liability when he gets out there against a guy who stretches the floor like uh, like Channing Frye.
0: But that leads me to my next question about game three and yep. if there's going to be another lineup change. Can the Raptors match the Cavaliers? For me, Cavaliers team with LeBron James operating around Kyle Corver, Jale Smith, Channing Frye, all these shooters. Can the mm-hmm. Raptors actually, with their roster, compete with that? Because we're talking about matchups now.
2: Yeah, exactly, and uh, I mean, they've got to take one or the other away. They, they they can't let them sit there bombing threes like they have been in this series. I mean, how many was it last night? 18? I think it was 18 yeah, for think, 33 also, last James night. Yeah, also
0: James had more free throws than the, the rest of the Raptors, which doesn't help.
2: Yeah, no, no, 21, 21 times to the line, uh, to 19 for the entire Raptor team, uh, a point which Dwayne Casey was only too happy to point out in this game Send a little not message not David
0: Fisdale style, though.
2: <laughs> no, no, not quite. Not quite get fined, but uh, <laughs> certainly send a little message. Um, so uh, they have to. They they can't live with both. Is, is is what it comes down to. You can't let LeBron go out for thirty five and thirty nine, and and still have them shooting at a, ho- a high volume of threes. You've got to find a way to take one or the other away. It doesn't. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it matters what they do with LeBron. I think he's going to get his. Um, he's just he's just playing at that level right now. Like he's, those last three games last year in the NBA final when he took that series over and, and basically won it by himself, and you go back to 2011 or whatever, it was Cleveland-Detroit, and it was an early early round series. And again, it was LeBron basically just putting the entire team on his back, and he was so locked in, and it didn't matter. The only difference this time is, he's playing at that level and he's got guys around him who are playing at a high level and they're, I mean, the Raptors are just, they're, they're fighting tooth and nail and, and they're not getting anything to show for it because no matter what they do, somebody is, is is making his shot when they're on them, contested threes, they're making them open threes. They're making those. It's, 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 they're, they're, they're just caught right now. And uh, unless, unless, you know, somebody, uh, goes from red hot to just lukewarm, or if the Raptors all of a sudden find a way to, to rotate a little bit quicker and get out to those three-point shooters a little bit more and maybe even get into their bodies a little bit more, then um, I, it, it's looking very much like a like a four-game sweep.
0: And if you look at when the Raptors have had success over the Cavs, Larry has to keep... He can't go toe-to-toe with Irving in in, in the points box. He's got to keep him down. That's how they they win. Same goes for for Kevin Love, but if, if this series is done in five games or less, because if the Cavs really want to go to Toronto and win two, I think they can easily. Does the yeah. front office feel any need to pay Carl Larry the big bucks? He's thirty-two next March. DeRozan's already got the cash. There's a decision to be made on a Barker. Is is this going to justify absolutely nothing in terms of some some players' futures?
2: What this is going to do is going to it's going to open that uh, that conversation wide open. The uh, the do we. Is Kyle Lowry worth maxing out at the age of 32? And I mean, if if they had got back to the third round, which they did la- like what they did last year, if they got back there, I don't think they were expecting to see Cleveland in the second round. I think that was always going to be in their heads anyway. It was going to be a third round matchup. Um, but if they get back to that third round somehow, then I think that I think I think they do do. I think they go ahead and they make that ma- they give them that max offer. But you go out in four straight. And I think that conversation is wide open now. I think they, they asked themselves some pretty hard questions. Can we win with Kyle Lowry as a point guard? Um, especially with, you know, giving him max money. Um, I'm not sure who they would be able to maintain. Like if you, if you give the max to Kyle, you've also got, like you said, Abaca, you've got PJ Tucker and you've got Patrick Patterson and you've got to sign all three of those as well. So you sign Kyle, you're not signing all four of those. One or two is going, um, so, there are a lot of questions. And I know, and you haven't asked this yet, but I'll, I'll throw it out there as well. A four game sweep to Cleveland in the second round, that might even put Dwayne Casey's future in, uh, in some jeopardy.
0: Well, we were asking that question to you in the, uh, during the London game. It, it seems to always be a, on the precipice.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, Dwayne Casey is never, he was, he was not initially uh, Masayu Jiri's guy or his pick, he inherited him. He stuck with him even after a four-game sweep in Washington two years ago. He thought we have to give this group a chance. They did. Uh, it paid off last year with three rounds of playoffs, um, a six-game series in the Eastern Conference Final against Cleveland, and and eventually a loss. But you know, it was it was. You look at it and you say, good body of work. Uh, got got what he could out of this roster. But now this year, you go ahead. You had P.J. Tucker and Serge Ibaka, who are supposed to make your defense significantly better. You go into a series thinking that, okay, maybe we're not going to win against Cleveland, but we're better suited. We have a better matchup. Cleveland's coming off of rather poor final two months of the season in which their defense was exposed, and, and, and maybe maybe they're not quite the team they were, so maybe we've got a shot. And now you lose four straight. Again, I think that opens uh, that opens the door to a lot of questions and uh it'll be uh it'll be a very interesting off season if this is a uh, four game sweep.
0: Yeah, I think we're all fooled by the Cavs again. once again going into the playoffs, last couple for you Mike. Um Yep. Eastern Conference rival Boston Celtics, they've got a superstar, it's official. They've got talent. They have got good coaching, future assets. I mean, imagine They've recovered from that 2 0 hole against Chicago. They're going to be in the conference finals more likely than anything else, and have a number one pick potentially in the summer. Would the Raptors, meanwhile, ever start losing again to get better? I just don't see them getting much closer to the Cavs.
2: Um, well, I mean, the Cavs. You, you have to look at the Cavs. Uh, look at on on the arc. I mean, LeBron's
0: he's
2: he's not old. But he's got a ton of miles on his body, and yes, he's a freak and a freak of nature and a, and a physical specimen. But I mean, they only they only stay at the top of that arc as long as LeBron stays at the top of that arc. And at some point, with all the minutes that man is piling up and all the play, there's got. To, I mean, it's just it's physics. I mean, his body is going to rebel at some point. It's not going to be what it was. So I mean, I it's not necessarily. Cleveland you're looking at anymore but like you said you look ahead to Boston they've got that they've got the first overall pick this year they've got they found a superstar in 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 uh, Isaiah Thomas um, and got him for like on the cheap ridiculously on the cheap and uh, and and like you said they've got Brad Stevens there he's in the middle of his seven-year deal there's there's continuity there's consistency so I mean where that leaves Toronto I'm not sure if it's a teardown or a rebuild, but um I it's it, it's they're in a tough spot. And I haven't even mentioned the fact that you know you've got Philadelphia coming on with some young talent and a ton of pick and picks to and picks as well. Plus Milwaukee with Giannis Antetokounmpo who's probably an MVP candidate next year or two years from now, but not much longer beyond not much beyond that. I mean, you've got a lot of teams in the East that are getting better. And Toronto, um, I think we can all agree, Toronto is not getting better right now. Toronto, is, Toronto. it looked like they might have a shot with Abaka and Tucker, and uh, that doesn't appear to be working out right now.
0: Last one. I, I heard Brian Windhorse on a podcast the other day say that Cleveland yep. beat reporters have their own sunflower seeds that they'll travel with to Canada as well. And by the end of a game, laptops surrounded by what well, it looks like a baseball dugout, basically. I just had Mark Boyle on as well for the Pacers radio uh, play-by-play guy and he said he carries uh it's uh I've forgotten the family guy's name Stewie uh the little model Stewie, Stewie around with him. Do you yeah. have any traveling essentials to games? Uh I don't
2: really think we do. I mean uh, the, we Canadians we're we're, we're
0: not <laughs> we're, we're,
2: we're not that high maintenance. We're we're, we're pretty <laughs> we're pretty easy to uh to appease. Um I think as long as there's beer in the pubs after the game we're good. <laughs>
0: I, I think was going to say, beer is the essential. There you go. Good man. Well, I had a nice beer with you in London, so uh, I, yes, I know what you mean. Yes, we
2: did. And we will well, do th- it again soon, hopefully.
0: Hey, well, the Raptors don't get relegated. That can't happen in the NBA, so it's a good thing. No, no relegation we'll here. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, thanks for your time today. You bet, Max. Thank you to both of my guests today on the U.S. Sports Podcast, Mark Boyle and Mike Ganta. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and review the show on iTunes and you can also listen to archived episodes of the podcast, including the likes of Peter King, Mike Breen and Adam Silver. Sorry I didn't get into the NFL Draft today, but that can wait a while yet with the NBA playoffs hitting its climax. More of that next week, but for now enjoy the games. No.